Not everything that calls itself a church is a church. And not everything that calls itself Israel is Israel. Hello friends, thanks so much for listening. You know, not everything that calls itself a church is a church. A while back, I recorded a podcast called What Did the Word Church Mean to Jesus? And if you haven't heard that, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to it because I think Jesus had something very specific in mind when he used the word ecclesia or when his followers wrote that word down. And what the church has become in our contemporary understanding of it may be removed or divorced or really off from what Jesus originally intended. And I think it's worth at least considering that and thinking about what did Jesus mean when he used this word, and how is this word already being used in the context in which Christ spoke it. And that word was a political word. It was a a body of citizens who were administrating the government, and we see it used in different places in Acts, and we see it used uh, in the scripture to to be this group of citizens uh, who were administrating the government of the kingdom that they were living under. And so likewise, Jesus has called us into his royal family. We've been born again. We've been made sons in the royal family of God. And we're invited to live as co-heirs of Christ, administrating his dominion, serving people in love, and expanding his kingdom on the earth. So if you haven't heard that podcast, I'd really encourage you to go check it out. It's called, What Did the Word Church Mean to Jesus? But You know, nowadays we have many groups that call themselves churches that most Orthodox believers would recognize. Well, that's not that's not a church. That's a that's a cult or that's a sect. Uh, You know, there are groups of people who don't even believe that Jesus was God's son, who will put church after the name of their institution. You know, there's even groups who would call themselves the Church of Satan. But if you're not submitting to Jesus Christ as the Messiah as the king in God's kingdom. You can't be his church administrating his government, his dominion on the earth. And so to be the church of Jesus Christ on the earth, Christ must be your head. And so it's interesting to me that not everything that calls itself a church is actually part of the church of Jesus Christ, is actually under the headship of Jesus. And Another interesting thing to me is not everything that doesn't call itself a church isn't a church. I think there were too many negatives in that sentence. But you can have a group of people who wouldn't identify themselves as a quote-unquote church, and yet they are administrating the kingdom of God. They are living as the family of God under the headship of Jesus Christ, and they're administrating the kingdom of God. They're living out the mandates of God, even though they might perhaps not identify as a church group. They might just say, well, this is, you know, this is just my small group, or this is my group of friends, or this is my Bible study, or whatever. Now, of course, not. I'm not trying to suggest that all Bible study is church, because it's not. And again, that would be a good example. You can have a Bible study, you can have a whole huge group that identifies it at itself as a church, and all they're doing is really just large, massive group Bible study together, but there's no transformation. So the accumulation of biblical knowledge and the expansion of God's reign on the planet 
are not the same thing. And so the church, of course, we want to study the Bible because it helps us learn who God is and what he's like and his plan for the ages, and it helps us to understand God's covenants and his unfolding purposes on the earth. So Bible study is important. I'm not trying to make light of Bible study, but just getting more information about God and being transformed by God's truth so that it becomes manifest in our life and so that we become the agents of God's kingdom on the earth are two different things. But anyway, my original point was that you can have a group of people who don't necessarily identify as a church, who are in fact a church, and you can have a group of people who want to identify as a church and who may even use that in the name of their institution, but who are in fact not a church of Jesus Christ. They could be an assembly of some other group. You know, they could be administrating the the dominion of their own religious structure or their own cult. There's even a church of atheism. And so they're a group of people who are administrating their own beliefs and their own institution, but they are clearly not part of the church of Jesus Christ. So I don't think it's particularly controversial to say not everything that calls itself a church is a church, and not everything that doesn't call itself a church isn't a church. What I'm about to say next is a little bit more controversial, and that is not everyone who calls themselves a Jew is a Jew, and not everything that identifies as Israel is the Israel of God. And that particular phrase comes from Galatians. At the end of Galatians in 6.16, Paul says, and as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 9, it says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not but are of a synagogue of Satan. Uh, So this is Jesus talking, as you may know, that Revelation is the last book of the Bible, and Jesus is addressing these churches in the ancient world, and he uses this phrase twice, first to the church in Smyrna in Revelation 2.9, and then to the church in Philadelphia in Revelation 3.9. Again, in 3.9 it says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie, Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Now, to say that not everyone who calls himself a Jew is a Jew, and not everything that identifies as Israel is the Israel of God, is a controversial position in certain circles. And without getting into great detail or or getting bogged down into kind of the background, it really comes down to Christian participation in anti-Semitism, because Christians have participated in anti-Semitism and have persecuted Jews historically. And so because of that, many Christians today are very reluctant to make these statements. Jesus makes an extremely radical statement in John chapter 8. His interaction with the Jews is coming to a crescendo. And in John eight forty four, he says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. And so here's Jesus, you know, John chapter 1 says that he came to his own and his own did not receive him. So Jesus has come to his people and his people are not receiving him. And yet it was through Israel's rejection of the Messiah that life came to Gentiles, to non-Jews. We see this playing out in Acts chapter 13. Paul and Barnabas are at Antioch and they're preaching the gospel in the synagogue 
And at first, the people are really excited to hear what they're saying. They're, they're explaining that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises to David and to Moses. And it says, as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. So when they're first preaching, they're hungry for this. And it says, after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles." For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. So we see, we know that salvation is from the Jews. Jesus said in John chapter 4, salvation is from the Jews, and God chose this people and, you know, they are the laborers. And when Jesus tells the, the parable of the laborers, the ones who had to bear the heat of the day, the Jews were the first chosen people of God. They were the laborers who had to labor under the law and bear the heat of the day. And God chose this people and he preserved them with this marvelous law that kept this people set apart so that they might be the source for salvation for all the peoples of the earth. So the Jews were blessed of God. They received the oracles of God. They were the fountain of wisdom for all the peoples on the earth. They were chosen by God to be the source of salvation for all the Gentiles, to bring salvation to the ends of the earth so that the Messiah might come to the earth through the Jewish people, through the descendants of Abraham, the descendants of David. And as Paul writes in Romans chapter 11, he says, through their trespass now, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their inclusion, their full inclusion, mean? So Paul also explains this in Ephesians chapter 2 when he's talking about God has made the two one in the body of Jesus Christ, that those who were far off, those who were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, now those people, Christ Jesus has called those who were once far off, they've been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so both Jew and Gentile, Paul says he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the Christ thereby killing the hostility. What hostility? The hostility between Jew and Gentile. So Jesus came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And back to Romans 11, Paul warns the Gentiles not to be arrogant about this. He says, you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. In other words, if you don't continue in faith, if you don't abide in Christ, 
If you abandon the confession that Jesus Christ is God's son and you reject Jesus as the Messiah, there's not going to be salvation for you either. You're still saved by your faith in Jesus Christ as Messiah. That's the only way to be saved. The only way to the Father is through Jesus Christ. There is no other way. And he's saying, you could, if you reject Christ, you can be cut off just like the Jews were. Uh, verse 21, for God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. So Jews can come back in. Jews can be included in Israel, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, their natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? In other words, if you were outside of the covenant and God saved you through Jesus Christ, well then, more so, these guys who were in the covenant— they can also come to faith through Jesus Christ. Lest you be wise in your, I'm continuing in verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. It is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So there's a concept called replacement theology, where um, people believe that the church has replaced Israel, the New Testament church. But I, what I see in the scripture is not a replacement of Israel, but an expansion of Israel, of the true Israel of God. So Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 7, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. In Romans 2.28 it says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And he echoes the same thought in Galatians chapter 6, beginning in verse 15, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And then what I read previously, and as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. So the reason I don't believe that Israel has been replaced but expanded is because in Jeremiah chapter 31, and beginning in verse 31, he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with the, their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And Jesus establishes this covenant in Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 20. He says, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. 
In Hebrews 9.15, it says, Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. And you remember in Hebrews uh, 8.13, it says, In speaking of the new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old and ready to vanish away. And in Hebrews 12, he contrasts the old, the giving of the old covenant where there was a mountain that was smoking and the people were trembling with fear and they didn't want God to speak to them anymore. He says, for you have not come to what may be touched. That's like a physical, actual mountain, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion. That means we've been spiritually born again. Remember Ephesians chapter 2 says that we're seated with Christ in heavenly places. He says, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Now that word there, assembly, means church. It's the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So Jesus establishes the covenant with Israel. Israel is the people of God. It's the covenant people of God. And Israel is then opened up through Christ to include all peoples. It's really interesting, the first sermon that is preached to a Gentile audience is in Acts chapter 10. Uh, let me just read it beginning in 30, verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and they asked him to remain for some days. That moment is not the birth of the church, of course, and neither is Acts chapter 2. Listen to Acts 7.38 in the King James Version, and you'll know what I'm talking about. It says, This is he that was in the church in the wilderness with the angel which spake to him in the Mount Sinai 
and with our fathers who received the lively oracles to give unto us. So the church in the wilderness was the people of Israel that God led out of Egypt. It was his assembly. It was the people that he chose to be in covenant with and to administrate his kingdom dominion on the earth. And then the church is empowered in this miraculous way by the coming and filling of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost when these believers are filled up and overflowing with the Holy Spirit on the inside of them and they become the witnesses of Jesus Christ to Israel and then to the nations. But I think it's really important to recognize that God is the one making the covenants. God sets the terms of the covenant. And so we can't say that Israel gets to continue to have the Mosaic covenant and Gentiles are now living under the new covenant because the Mosaic covenant is gone. It's passed away. It's the only one of the covenants in the Bible that is not described as an everlasting covenant. God's covenant with Noah, with David, with Abraham, and through Jesus are all described as an everlasting covenant. But God's covenant with Moses and God's covenant through the law is never described as an everlasting covenant. And so Hebrews calls that covenant obsolete. It says that it's passed away. There is no temple. There is no record, a genealogical record, for there ever to be a priesthood through the line of Aaron reestablished. Now, this, of course, of course, should never become an excuse for anti-Semitism. We shouldn't be anti-anyone, any people group. As believers in Jesus Christ, we're to love all people, and I think even especially to honor the Jews as the source of salvation for all peoples, all nations on the earth, that Jesus Christ came from the Jews, that as Jesus said, salvation is from the Jews. So anti-Semitism has no place in a Christian church, in a Christian's life, just as any kind of prejudice against any ethnic group has no place in a Christian's life. Yet we need to, at the same time, recognize that just because there is a man-made nation-state that calls itself Israel, that does not make them the Israel of the Bible. That does not make them the covenant people of God. And I'm certainly not saying that that means that we shouldn't love those people or You know, of course, we should still love Israel. We should still love the people who live in the nation of Israel, both Jew and Palestinian. We should still try and reach out to those people. We should still support efforts to share the gospel with all those people, but not under the pretense of them being the covenant people of God. People who confess Jesus Christ as Lord and who live under the lordship of Jesus, who are indwelled with the Holy Spirit, Those are the covenant people of God, as it described in Jeremiah, the people upon whom God has written his law in their hearts, the people that are living by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, by the indwelling direction of the Holy Spirit. Those are God's covenant people. And so just because something calls itself Israel, it doesn't make it Israel in a biblical sense. And just because something calls itself a church doesn't make it a church in the biblical sense. Now, there may be other political reasons to support Israel as a political entity, but I just think it's worthwhile to consider who are the covenant people of God and what are the implications of being the covenant people of God. Let me close with the end of Romans 11. Beginning in 29, it says, For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, 
but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. So they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Amen.